Blog Talk Radio. They do not want you to think too much. That is why our country and our world has become so proliferated with entertainments, mass media, television shows, amusement parks, drugs, alcohol, and every kind of entertainment that keeps the human mind entertained so that you don't get in the way of important people by doing too much. Everybody, uh, we're on a little early today, and this is Punching Left with Clifton Knox and David German. You out there, David? Yep. How are you doing on this uh, fine Easter Sunday? All right. How are you? Doing good. And uh, you attended vigil last night and mass this morning. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Was it? How was it? Yeah, it's good. It's uh gets you away from all the buzz outside. Right, right. Well, I I think it's a it's a beautiful day and uh I think here it's that, cloudy. Uh, it, is it cloudy there? Well, I mean it's a little cloudy here, but it's not raining, so um you know, it, the thing about it is is that uh it, it's a special day for everybody out there who's a Christian and in some instances for those of us that aren't. And I'd like to thank uh, Blog Talk Radio for giving me this pop-up that keeps coming up, letting me know that they're out on holiday until the 2nd of April, and it won't go away. It keeps popping up in our on our studio software. But Did you guys hear anyway. me, by the way? Yes, yes, oh, we hear you. I do. Uh, so I was just, that brings I was just listening to, to you talking about Easter. Yes, yes. That brings me to, to you, uh, Rick. I wanted to tell you that we are grateful to have you on the show. It's nice to have someone on that uh, know, has some, some formal knowledge, anyway, of, of legal theory and can help us uh, you know, to learn something on this episode. So can you introduce yourself a little bit, Rick, and just kind of tell us what, you know, what, about you and where you're from and, and uh, your knowledge a little bit as far as legal theory? Yeah, well, um, I have a master's in law, as you might be able to tell by my accent, I'm from England, the um, uh, U-S-S-K. I'm trying to think of a witty way of, of putting it. But, um, uh, no, we, yeah. we totally understand. 
Yeah, sad, sad but true. Um, and I, I write various libertarian articles about what libertarianism is. And uh, really, I'm interested in the history of Western law. And I have a book coming out this year, published by Arctos, which is a great publishing house. They publish people from across the board on the, on the right. And uh, they're going to be publishing my book. It's going to be called The, the Uniqueness of Western Law. Uh, so look out for that wow. later this year. That sounds so like something I'd probably it, read. It, 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 certainly. Something I would read as well. So is this your first time that it's been announced on any podcasts or anywhere other than social it media? It is, actually, yeah. Well, yeah, so then, then we're privileged. And yep. uh, I'm probably going to have an afterword by uh, Ricardo Duchenne. I don't know if you're familiar with Professor Ricardo Duchenne. He's quite popular within our circles, I suppose. He wrote a book called The Uniqueness of Western Civilization. He's, um, uh, well, I would highly recommend him for trying to understand the origins of uh, Western culture, um, where, where we get our unique civilization from, where it comes from. And he he has a powerful argument to say that it's not just uh, cultural. We're, we're not just uh, a blank slate, as it were. We, um, there, there is a, a genetic element to it, probably. He leaves it a little bit open-ended, I suppose, you've got to in academia. But it's a fantastic book. Okay. I recommend that as well. Well, um, uh, well, we're we're privileged to be the platform that you announce your book on, um, and that's a great suggestion. I have heard of him, though I will be honest, I have not read his work, um, mm. uh, but I do have somewhat of a background in evolutionary psychology, and I actually do have some colleagues who uh, are fairly known in the field uh, that maintain that uh, there is a genetic component to culture and. Uh, the way we order our societies as well. So I'm, I'm yeah, completely yeah. in line with that, that mode of thinking. Um, so, so I guess where we started, and this is uh, in a lot of ways, this is going to be a learning session. I mean, I have a, a very basic knowledge of common law, nothing that I would mm. like to throw up and say, I'm a, any sort of expert. And uh, David, where, where are you at as far as your knowledge of, of legal theory and common law? I'm probably less than you, Clifton. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, very good. So, so uh, do you do you prefer? Do you like to go by Rick? Yeah, that's absolutely fine. Yeah. Okay. So, so uh, Rick, can you kind of lay out a little bit about um, your book? Maybe it was some of the things that you might talk about in there, and and sort of uh, just a, a general synopsis of of the book. <clears throat> yeah. Sure. Well, I mean. In in the book, I, I try to focus on what is unique about Western law. What what makes it so special? Because because it is unique. Um, there was a, a professor. His name was Professor Prakash Sinha. So obviously, from his name, you might guess that he's from India, and he had trained in America and India. So he was able to compare um, different legal systems that he had studied. And he was convinced that, that it's, it's not just that Western law is unique. He thought that the idea of law itself was something 
uniquely fundamental to Western civilization in a way that it just wasn't for any other of the major civilizations or pretty much any group he actually suggested. Um, and so, so, so what is that? What, 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 what is our unique understanding of law? What makes it the way we order our societies more than just um, ending up with some arbitrary moral code that's maybe either just built from the ground up or imposed from the top down by some by some tyrant or something like that. So to begin the story, we'd have to go with, with natural law. And where does natural law come from? Well, I follow Ricardo de Chen, the, the man I was talking about before. I think his theory of, um, of identifying the uniqueness of Western civilization with the, the Indo-European people, who are sometimes uh, called the, the Aryan people uh, the, the the group the nomadic people who came from the um the uh, let's see the the steppes in ukraine and over let's say the past 10 to maybe 15000 years they had been uh, coming into europe and slowly uh, dominating and conquering and and in in northern europe especially they wiped out everyone who was there so they totally uh, settled that all, all by themselves and um, these were a people who um, they they were almost psychopathic. They had they had certainly had some psychopathic traits to them, in that um, they would fight in a berserker warfare style. They would go into warfare totally naked, completely um, disregarding, flouting their own um, um, fear, if you like. And it was it was that sense of conquering all fear and completely staring death in the face proudly that um, was was a trait that was highly regarded uh, for their people. And so it was those who were the bravest, if you like, or the ones who cared the least about their own safety, who became the, the, the kings, the war chiefs. And uh, this led to a very, very different culture to anything that you see in the ancient world certainly yes uniquely different to even the turks or the mongols or other similar nomadic groups definitely unique um so they they were the ones who in greece looked at uh, the orient looked at people like the phoenicians the persians all these people who had basically sun god type kings uh with many, many, many serfs or, or slaves, really, underneath them. And they said, well, this, this, this way of ordering society just doesn't suit us because we are very individualistic. We're very proud people. Um, and so the Greeks tried experimenting uh, with their own idea of how they could um, form a kind of sensible, localised government called the polis, uh, which is a very unique idea. I won't go into that now. But what makes them even more special is that they developed something called natural law, which was this idea of saying, uh, looking at the, the individual man, looking at their free will, and saying, okay, well, how can we construct um, a system of law that doesn't impede or infringe upon any individual's free will? This totally uh, evolved out of their, their proud sense of, of individualism. And um, really, I think that was the, the birth 
of uh, this unique system of law, Western Western law, and that in turn would later give birth to what we'll we'll talk about today, which is common law, and also um, civil law on on the continent. And there's a lot of confusion about uh, what those two systems of law are, what they mean. Um, uh, so hopefully I can try and uh, clear that up as well. Uh, yes, and and I'm that's one of the things I'm very eager to to discuss with you, and I think David is too today. Um, one of the things I want to note is that it's funny you mentioned the the nomadic tribes that came sort of from the steppes area and migrated into yes. Europe, and and very much so into northern and northwestern Europe. Um, and you see that you talked about the berserkers. You you see that in most of those. There are a lot of the even the Celtic cultures. Um, at yes. least the, the less civilized ones had that that berserker aspect. Even shared a very similar uh, religious uh, system, maybe with some changed names and some slight differences. But so you see sure. some kind of uniformity there across Europe. Just not, I mean, not total uniformity, but quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so, so I guess the where we can start at, uh, uh, we can start with David. See, if, David, do you have any uh, questions? Uh, for what for Rick based on what he just was explaining to us about his book and the synopsis or hypothesis that he has um i ask a lot of people this um were uh were you um influenced by Harper oh definitely yes i mean i i um i know uh, professor Harper i uh, i lived in bodrum uh, for a, a small time and that is where of course he holds his uh, property and freedom society conference every year um so i was able to have um, dinner with him personally before uh, i attended the conference and had a long conversation with him and and i saw him uh, this year again at uh, the uh, mises uk conference which he was kind enough to attend it was good to have him there and uh yeah, that was that was fantastic. It's always nice to see him. He always has uh, an interesting perspective. It doesn't matter what subject you're talking about. He'll always have some insightful comment or a, a, a meaningful joke, at least. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, well, one thing about uh, Papa is that he definitely has a way of looking at things and tearing them down. And putting them oh, yeah. back together very logically, very logically, <laughs> very lo- very Germanically, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, very Germanic. I, I think I think um, he would make a really good Bond villain. I've always thought that. <laughs> it, I, there's it's just a lost a lost talent. It, we, we'll probably never see it, but um, we can dream nevertheless. Um, yeah, uh, he he did influence me um, directly in a number of ways um, in in my book. Actually, I um, am interested in how his theory of argumentation ethics has been applied to law, and how it's highlighted the um, importance of some common law doctrines. And actually, that relates to to natural law as well. What we we're talking about before, um, so. There's a, a, a legal theorist, a libertarian legal theorist called Stefan Kinsella. Have you heard of him? Oh, certainly, certainly. Oh, okay, great. And um, so he's quite popular in libertarian circles as well, isn't he? But he uh, he took Hopper's theory of argumentation, um, which was actually uh, Frank Van Dunn's uh, theory as well. They both arrived at the same 
idea just independently and they didn't know about each other until many years later which is quite interesting but the idea of argumentation ethics as I'm, I'm sure you know is that um, when we start engaging in argumentation and we start discussing something we put our swords down and so there's there's all kinds of uh, presuppositions all kinds of assumptions that we're making as soon as we do that we, we're assuming that the person we're starting to talk to is rational and can understand what we're saying we're we're assuming mm -hmm. private property rights in a really fundamental way and that's interesting well, uh, all of these private different property things rights we're... well if you might might let me private property rights in yourself we're assuming uh, that that essentially yeah, you have property rights in yourself and and, yeah. and it's good that you kind of went into this because uh, I, I think that the argu uh, Hoppe's argumentation ethics have a huge impact for people who follow natural law theory. But go ahead, go ahead. Absolutely not. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think some people are very comfortable to just say, oh, I was talking about private property rights. But w where Frank Van Dunn goes even further is he says, no, 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 this is much more related to natural law. There's something even before we get to um, acquiring property and using resources and things like that we have free will in our person over our body in our mind there's something even more fundamental about it and that brings us right back to natural law so the reason frank van dunn was so excited about argumentation ethics is because he says this is proving if you like logically um, the foundations of uh, classical natural law how it was before before it became more a kind of um, oh, well, God has said this, so we ought to do it. I don't know if you're familiar with it. David, David Hume's famous criticism of um, a later form of natural law, which was, well, just because something is doesn't mean that you ought to do it or it ought Correct. to be that way. Um, the the uh, is ought dilemma. Yeah, precisely, yes. It's often called Hume's law. Um, but no, uh, I mean earlier natural law was far more normative than that it's just saying well look this is how human beings are this is human nature um so what is the the natural order that comes about uh, in a human society that's all it's talking about um uh, other you know religious doctrines and that sort of thing that, that's that's the supernatural and i think the church was always very careful um, not everyone in the church, but obviously the, the, the mainstream, the main body of church tradition was very careful to keep separate the supernatural, the spiritual, which uh, was, you know, over, overseen by the priests and uh, the bishops and the pope, etc. And the natural, the natural order of the human world, which was overseen by uh, lords and, and kings and other people who, you know, undertake a, a, a Christian duty to maintain the order without becoming Which a tyrant, are, without stepping on any free man's toes, as it were. Well, one of the, one of the funny things about that, you mentioned that, is that that's one of the, the changes that took place after uh, the, the Reformation, Martin Luther, is that a lot of uh, monarchs yeah. began to uh, uh, basically take the, the church's position uh, essentially co-opted the church's power and pulled it under themselves and became the head of their own churches in a lot of cases. For instance, uh, King Henry, I believe, VIII, uh, did this yes. as well, and that's where we had the founding of the Anglican Church. And, and one yes. of the things that I, I am 
pretty familiar with natural law theory uh, and, and so on. It's just when we start to get into the more subtle nuances later, legal uh, theory and so on. And I, and I think you're on a great track. I don't want to stop you from going down this point. I just want to throw something in there here and there. And one of those things is that uh, really I, a lot of people want to say that or, or, or point to Aristotle as really a, a the beginning of natural law theory. I would say he's more of a precursor. And I, I actually look more to Thomas Aquinas as the beginnings of natural law. And interestingly enough, Aquinas was sort of Rothbard's, one of Rothbard's favorites too. And he's a very big oh, yeah. natural, Murray Rothbard, very big natural law guy. But, uh, yeah. So, yeah. So. Well, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Rothbard there. I mean, Rothbard for me is like the, the quintessential example of uh, the libertarian who says, um, okay, uh, natural rights. Okay, I can I can talk about natural rights, but I don't want to go too far. I don't want to, I don't want to endorse natural law or Aquinas or anything like that fully, um, because they just don't think it. They're, they're afraid it won't square with modernity, with the modern world, the post Enlightenment world, um, and ah, I think that's a, a real shame. Um, I've well, there, there's kind so of a much conflict further. there with. Well, there's kind of a conflict there with with if you look at a lot of the Austrian uh, economists, they were mm. um, consequentialists, you know. And David and I have spent yeah. a lot of time talking about that. For instance, Mises was definitely a rule utilitarian, as opposed to a natural oh, yeah. law guy. And I'm not saying that he completely eschewed all natural law. But he, he definitely was more concerned with outcomes in a lot of ways than he was with the beginning point. And uh, so that is a huge area <clears throat> excuse me, of contention within the libertarian circles. And, I, and I've noticed that it seems to – tends to, from my perspective, to fall on two sides. You tend to see a lot more uh, rural utilitarian or consequentialists on the minarchist side, minimal government, small government like Nozick, Hayek yeah. uh, guys. And, and on the on the natural law side, you see a lot more of the anarcho-capitalist Murray Rothbard, uh, uh, and fun, ironically, Miesian train of thought. But go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no, no, I, I agree entirely. And I, actually, I think that's kind of inevitable. I think um, if you're going to go with um, modernity, if you're going to go with um, modern ideas, you're going to um, abandon natural law, maybe abandon the idea of um, free will. And it's, I mean, it's really popular to think that there's no such thing as free will and to think that the debate is finished and that there's, there isn't really any other side to the argument. That, I mean, that's, that's very popular. It's not at all true, but um, it's a very popular idea well, today, especially with, especially with atheists, of course. But, um, right. um, but as soon as you go down well, that road... I think I think minarchism is kind of where you're going to end up with. I mean, you'll probably end up being a classical liberal, um, maybe sort of follow Jordan Peterson in more of his political views, let's say, and that's basically right. where you're where you'll end up. I think. Well, well, are you here with uh, Herbert Spencer? Um, not as much as I'd like to be, no. Well, he, he espoused almost sort of a hybridization of thought between um, uh, consequentialism or utilitarianism and natural light rights. And rather than he, – he always said that he conformed to rational 
utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. And essentially, uh, the way it worked out was is that that in his belief, um, the the outcomes that resulted from natural law theory provided greater utility than just looking for whatever you think at the moment, whatever is expedient to provide the, nice. you know, the best outcome. So he felt like it was a, that that natural law theory and natural rights were a long term solution because the consequences down the pike were much better in general. And I mean, that, so, sounds, so that it, sounds very interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not what you usually encounter, is it? But I think, um, yeah. I mean, uh, I've yet to, to read that. I definitely like to, but I mean, that sounds like a perfectly reasonable attitude and actually something that would be much more in keeping with earlier ideas of natural law and something that I think maybe Suarez or, you know, perhaps even Aquinas, if he were alive today, would um, would say, but that's a very sensible thing to do. There's nothing wrong with looking at the uh, empirical data of the, the, the kind of society that natural law would produce and to say, oh, hey, look, this, this is producing some kind of order. Um, right. You know, I mean... We, we could all do that, and I, I think that actually that might be a good approach to um, maybe trying to sell the idea or to try and get people to think about natural law theory differently. Uh, definitely, yeah, I'll have to have a read of so, it. Yeah, yeah. So, so I guess I guess where we want to go at this point and and uh, kind of look at is if if you could kind of give us a real basic sino- uh, uh, layout of what's the difference between, for instance, say common law and uh, civil law, legislated law, that that type of of train of thought. Yeah. Okay. And I I think that's a really important discussion to have because I've heard lots of libertarians who are maybe much more interested in economics. So they uh, they're very fond of Austrian economics, and to the extent where they think that that is the sphere of libertarianism, they think it's all about economics. Um, I'm very much of the school that. Libertarianism is all about law. It's all about uh, Western law. Um, it's, it's legal theory fundamentally, and um, I I think they can get confused, and sometimes they will throw out statements like, um, "Oh, uh, common law is 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 better because it's it's what founded the kind of Anglo liberty tradition. It gave us the Magna Carta and." Uh, the Bill of Rights and um, the U.S. Constitution and the, the U.S. Bill of Rights as well, and um, a civil law. Oh, that's this uh, European thing. It's based on Roman law, and so it's just statist. And or they'll, mm-hmm. they'll have another dichotomy. They'll have another dichotomy. They'll say, um, well, uh, private law. Private law is what it's all about. Public law. That's all evil. Or or, or maybe some people I've even heard say. Oh, civil law. Civil law is good because it's private, but criminal law, criminal law is all to do with the state. And I think a lot of these ideas are confused. And what I want to try and show is that um, really when we're talking about libertarian legal theory, we're really talking about natural law. And uh, when we're talking about state law, we're talking about something called legal positivism. Um, so positivism is more in, in the sense of the word to posit something, to put something forward. So it's to say that um, when you have a law, it has to be imposed by the will of the state. Uh, so it's like it's like if you like it, it um, it's like the Enlightenment idea of 
um, when we look at the, 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 the state of nature for mankind, we're brutish and horrible. So we need a state to come along and impose some kind of order on us. Okay. So once we've got that cleared up, that's fine. Now we can start looking at the history of common law and civil law. Where did it come from? Well, for that, we kind of have to go back to the customary systems of law that existed with the, uh, the Germanic Beshali, uh in Europe. Um, and uh, and uh, as well with, with the Vikings and, and the Celts as well. So if we kind of just think of Northern Europe fundamentally, you had these um, Germanic uh, customary systems of law, which uh, involved having a king who was basically a war chief. He was basically like the big man in a tribe. So it, it, it was in a way ethnocentric, um, but it, it wasn't setting out to be that way. That's that's just how it was. You know, people within a certain uh, distance of you were probably your cousin, you know, related to you in some well, way. And okay. Hereditary mm, power has a t- well. Hereditary power has a tendency to to create that type of environment anyway, because you're handing power mm. down to people who are just like you. Essentially, you're, you share the same genes with you, and of course, you have all yeah. of your relatives. You're they're going to be aristocrats probably and hold power themselves. So it has a tendency to to be more ethnocentric, I think. Oh, definitely, yes. I mean, because uh, families form then into into larger tribes, which form into you know what we would now call a nation, let's say, or a clan, maybe. Um, and uh, when you have a dispute and you're not resolving it with violence, um, uh, you go to the elders you're looking for some kind of system of justice and just naturally speaking that those would be the fathers, the elders um, of, of the community. And, 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 that, and, and you, see, you see this with any tribe, pretty much any human tribe in the world. It, it kind of forms like that. But what made these Northern European tribes significant is that they were highly individualistic and they had... Um, very, very sophisticated systems um, of law to the extent that when the uh, the church came into Northern Europe, these ideas of um, the, res- the, the right to resist um, a tyrant, uh, ideas like that were, were, were not at all alien um, to the, the Germanic people. And the reason for that is that the, the world that Christianity had grown up in was so, so soaked. It was just seeping in uh, natural law theory, uh, which they had from the, the Greek world. I mean, everyone was educated mm-hmm. uh, in, in Greek, if they were anyone of note uh, in, in, in Jerusalem, right. say. And just all of the early church, they were, they were Greek and they were so familiar with philosophy. So uh, without going too far down... Um, down that, that road um, the, the point is basically that the, the, the natural law world from which Christianity came from found so much in common with the Indo-European uh, tribes that they discovered uh, in Northern Europe um, there really wasn't a huge amount of debate over such fundamentally individualistic ideas and so what, what we, we then see emerging in the Middle Ages is these very advanced, um, uh, or sorry, this advanced civilization, I suppose we could call it Christendom, 
which was stateless uh, in, in the proper sense of the word. Uh, there, were, there were jurisdictions for all sorts of things. Guilds, guilds had their own uh, laws. They were a law unto themselves. Um, and and I just want to say, sorry, real quick, you mentioned you brought up guilds being a law unto themselves. This mm. is where um, you see a lot of uh, intellectual property ideas start to come into being and start to enter into yes. common law is, is through the guilds and the way that they kept trade secret. So there are a lot of people, and I, and I will tell you, uh, that, that think that you must have a state to have intellectual property laws. And, oh, right. and really, you don't. You don't. Um, no. so a lot of the intellectual pro- – the ideas that, the, that we're using today in the modern world for intellectual property originated in, under common law and originated uh, within these guilds and so on, and trades guilds. But go ahead. Uh, sure, yeah. And I, and I mean, they, they develop the kinds of laws that would be best for their practice. And I mean, you see the same thing today. When you have big corporations and they have disputes with each other, they don't want to go to state courts, and they don't. They, they they have their own courts that they go to. The judges will be real experts in in this field. They, I mean, they've been in the business, and so they much rather go there because they know they're going to get a really sound decision uh, from them. Um, and but it was it was like that for everything, pretty much. Of course, you had right. uh, the, you had the king. And the king, being a member of the church, acted in a, a fatherly role in that um, where there were what, we, what we, we would call today crimes committed, the king uh, would um, intervene to maintain uh, the peace. To, and also, I mean, um, in courts, um, you had uh, the church. The church was very influential and they they were there to try and uphold the, the system of um, argumentation, to try and make sure that um, uh, th- th- there was no messing about, um, no, no, nobody could be uh, corrupted in some way, no one was going to get confused, and especially as the juries were introduced. Yeah, mm. so they wanted to make things were settled according to the rules as as they were laid out, I guess. And uh, just to bring David in real quick, David, did you have any questions about any of the stuff that that Rick has said so far? Is there anything you should ask him based um, on any of that? It's funny that um, he mentioned earlier that he saw um, Hop as a uh, James Bond villain. I always saw him as a Sith or a or a Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, to, yeah, uh, a German but, uh, Sith might work. Actually, I never thought of that. <laughs> well, well, I, I, uh, I think I think one of uh, the things that is funny about Hoppe is, is that uh, he has that accent. You know, it's real thick. So, but go ahead, yeah. David. I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead and ask your question. Um, was. Uh, what was the law, you know uh, what was the law of um feudal japan as compared to um feudal europe yes mm. i mean i mean p- people will often say well japan japan is a very individualistic place right i mean samurai were like knights and um 
you know, they've been able to adopt lots of Western ideas, uh, institutions, uh, modern industry, for an example. They've been able to adopt that very readily. Um, aren't they uh, the most like us in a way? Well, I would follow Ricardo Duchenne's thinking in this. He uh, makes a brilliant comparison uh, between uh, the the Japanese samurai and the the European knights in uh, the, their respective feudal systems. Now, the the individualistic difference that the, the Europeans have can be seen in the fact that when a um, uh, a shogun or a daimyo, uh, like a lord, basically in Japan, was killed, all the samurai had to kill themselves uh, and, and die with uh, their, their daimyo. It wasn't just a matter of, yeah, we're going to make some oaths and that sort of thing, but I'm my own man, and my sword is my own sword, and um, you know I'm expecting something in return. It was, it, I mean, it was far more honor-based, but their conception of honor was a much more um, collectivist one. And you can, you can still see that today in that uh, if there is um, someone who commits a very public crime in an East Asian country, you will have uh, people in the community, uh, politicians especially, uh, apologizing for what this person has done. And you think, well, why on earth are they doing that? That just doesn't make any sense to our European mind at all. But the reason they're apologizing is because they, they see themselves as all being interconnected in, a, in a, the way that you, you know, imagine one would think in an Eastern philosophy sort of way. You know, we're all sort of connected and full cycles and uh, maybe karma, I suppose, is um, more of a Hindu idea, but you understand where I'm going with that. Or, or the Tao, for instance. It sees us all as being interlinked. And so um, they think if someone has done something bad, well, that must have been because the collective uh, let him down in some way or didn't encourage him or didn't spot something. And so they, they take much more of a personal responsibility for what this individual has done. So already you can see that there is a very big um simply in just the way one thinks of oneself uh, between uh, that culture and European culture. But, yeah, okay, I do think there is an argument for, uh, for saying that Japan is more similar to us than, than other cultures, certainly, for, for a number of reasons. Okay, so that was that's, an interesting fact here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so... Hmm. So when we're when we're talking about uh, common law in the sense of one of the things that uh, David and I hear repeatedly is people talking about freedom of movement, and mm. so so it, and many people talk about it in a way that they they feel that it trumps property rights, for instance, um, and and I and I think that there are a couple of instances that I'm aware of where it might you know. Uh, but but in general, it doesn't trump property rights from from my knowledge in a way. So you know things such as easements, or uh, I think Britain has yeah, a lot of yeah. paths, walking paths and stuff. But these are these are things that do not give you rights 
beyond just moving across the geographic area, I believe. But anyway, I wanted to ask you about the whole concept of freedom of movement. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a very interesting uh, question. And uh, I, I love the fact that you know what an easement is. Sometimes it's, it's very difficult to have to try and explain that to people, even, even British people, because we just take it so for granted. Yeah, of course, of course you will have a spot on your land and you're just undertaking as a duty the fact that there will be this, this spot and, and, you know, the postman can walk across it and you're not going to shoot him. You know, um, it, it, it just, it just seems so obvious. Um, and, um, uh, yeah. Okay. So, so does, does common law Trump property rights in, in some ways? Is that, is that basically your, your question? Where, where does it and how does it, and what would be the history of that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is there some mysterious freedom of movement that means you can just mm. move over any any land, anytime, anywhere that you want to just say on a whim? Uh-huh. Okay, well then we have to get into this, the distinction between uh, – we, we'll have to start talking about public, public property and, and private property and that sort of thing. But uh, historically, I mean historically in, in common law, um, there, in, 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 public, in certain places, so say in, in, in a city, in a city, um, they would uh, they would actually protect travellers. They would seek to protect protect travellers, even from from the king. I mean, there are instances in medieval history where um, a city will have certain laws protect, protecting uh, someone who's come from another city into that city. And uh, the, the king was coming to hunt this person down, you know, for some personal vendetta or whatever. It doesn't really matter. And the city would actually, um, um, you know, kick out, kick out the king, kick out the guy saying, oh, we've got our own law here. So, um, you know, and it says you can stay for a year and a day in our city uh, without harm. Um, and so you, you see instances like that, so I mean, you know, you, you can see even well the king, even the king didn't necessarily have um, this complete freedom of movement everywhere. Um, he just mm. had a kind of imperium uh, to protect um, certain rights within common law, and yeah, that would have been on certain roads between cities, that would have been bridges, all sorts of things like that. Yeah. And uh, as kings uh, started to expand their power, obviously, um, they, they expanded those areas they were protecting and maybe they'd introduced tolls and, and, and things like that. Um, but, for instance, the idea that you could have, um, say, some Saracen, say some, some uh, Muslim trader, um, and he, he arrives um, in, I don't know, London let's just say, just for argument's sake, and he wanted to travel to, to Essex or he wanted to um, go to different places. Well, I mean, that would have been entirely dependent on uh, the, the law, the jurisdiction of wherever he was going. He couldn't just go anywhere. Um, and even when he was on the road, I mean, um, being Christian, the kings usually would have said, well, we'll, we'll you know, protect strangers, sure. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so there was that. But I mean, you know, the king could just as well have said, no, oh, screw you, I don't like the way you look or something like that. I don't like the way you smell. 
and then um, just disallow people like that, disallow you know people from wherever from from being on his roads. Um, he could have done that. Um, and th- this is what makes the idea of easements that you've just spoken about so interesting, is that even as um, common law uh, developed, and over time, even as it became fundamentally much more statist, and it gave, um, especially after the Enlightenment, it gave the, the, the Parliament um, much more say over an individual Englishman's uh, property and his... Um, his income, his money. Um, it, it, even then, um, the, you know, the idea that you need to have some sort of easement on your land, uh, wh- whether it's for someone from the government, whether it's your neighbour, to be able to traverse that land. I mean, that, that, that's just always been a, a fundamental. Um, and Really, I think what that well, highlights, and maybe what we can discuss next, is the fact that um, as we've entered modernity, um, people have become a lot more um, individualistic, but in the sense that they've lost all sense of personalism. They've lost all sense of what makes communities work. Um, and, I mean, you look at well, you know the average Western society today, and people just mm-hmm. travel from home to work, to maybe a cafe, back to home, and there is no sense of community. So the idea well, of well, well, I how guess does these things like easements arise, it just seems completely alien to us. Well, well, I guess I guess one of the things that I think about here, and, and you're going back to just easements for a moment, uh, people yeah. should look at that. Uh, I think I think that what what they don't understand about traveling across other property is you had to essentially the way that even for government workers, people representing a king or a democratically elected official, you must have business in order to travel across that piece of land. You can't just get up one morning and say, I think I'm going to walk over here and sit underneath this guy's apple tree and, and think, you know, he might say that's okay and not care. And then again, he might tell you, you have to leave. But the point is though, is that with an easement, he can't really tell you legally that you can't cross his property. And this is, let's say you're, you're landlocked on all, all sides um, and, and you need to go to town. To, uh, you have legitimate business. Maybe you're employed there. You own a business there. And, of course, your home is landlocked, so if you're in town, you have to be able to get home. And so they, they can't this, – this was, this was set up to stop people from being trapped and, and to allow for the flow of business and economics. But it, it, it was not meant – to just let people travel willy-nilly over other people's property just at, at for a whim, you know, strangers with no business at all in the area, uh, just 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 vagrants and migrants to, to just wander aimlessly across the land, you know. No, um, I, I, that, I, I, think I, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying, and and of course that would depend on the size of the land, and it would depend on. What kind of people were generally crossing that person's land? You know, I mean, are they are there frequently people coming and like stealing stealing apples from that apple tree you were talking about? You know, um, right. Uh, so I mean, it, it would have depended on that. But I think the, the, the trap we tend to fall into is that it, with, with easements, you accept when you, when there's an exchange of property, um, you accept in the contract. Uh, in the agreement, you accept this uh, this duty. The duty passes to you 
to uh, allow this, this easement. So, you know, you've read the contract or, you know, at least hope your you know, lawyer has. And um, there's an easement there. And so you're accepting it. When you sign it, you're accepting that you're going to do that. But even before we had uh, contracts, because this, this contractarian way of thinking, it's, it, again, it's, it's very modern. Even before, before we had that, you know, we lived in communities. It was just, well, guess, it was just common decency so. to allow people to just cross your field at a certain point because well, well, they could get to church would, quicker that way. You know, just something but, like that. But wouldn't you say there are instances, though, for instance, I, I, I have – it seems to me in the past I have read of instances where uh, you had an individual, for instance, who was landlocked, mm. uh, uh, yeah. surrounded by people, and he couldn't travel to do business. And, and he actually went in before a judge or a magistrate, and he was granted an easement that was then yeah. you know, held in for, for – perpetuity in contracts but he was granted that easement by he actually had to litigate you know people have had to litigate for these oh yeah sure but um i mean i mean it's just obvious that you would need one i mean say you you lived on um the 10th floor of a block of apartments i mean you need an easement to get into the building to use the elevator, <laughs> you know, sure. how are you going to get there? You're not sure. Spider-Man, you know. Sure. I, well, I'm not against easements, and I'm not. And I think, I think my point is, is that, is that I think, my my point is, is that there is uh, a way of of allowing people to travel um, within the range of property rights without uh, disrespecting property rights. But at the same time, uh, it doesn't mean that there's that every time you want to cross somebody's property, you automatically have an easement. What, for instance, you mentioned the apartment. You have business there. Your residence is in there. Of course, somebody owns the building, and you're renting from them. But, but even in situations where you own a condo um, and so on, you, know, you, you actually have something there that you have to do. You live there. You work over here, et cetera, et cetera. So – so you have business. You're not just walk, getting up in the morning and walking onto people's property and, and just wandering around aimlessly. That's that's what I'm saying. I, yeah. I'm not a big fan of the idea of freedom of movement. I, I could be wrong. I mean, but I, I don't believe that a right to freedom of movement is actually something that exists, at least from my perspective. I mean, I don't know, David, I mean, where do you no, come down I, on that? Davis, do you have a do you have a point of view on freedom of movement? Um, yeah, I've lost. Oh, yeah, yes. my, my thing boils down to. Go ahead, uh, my thing boils down to if uh, that uh, that uh, that property is impeding my movement, um, so I so I get to waltz through it. It's um, to me that's uh, uh, a bit. Uh, that that someone gets to uh, walk walk through someone's property because it, it deters their movement is um, it's uh, it's kind of democratic in a way and it's kind of um, a bit a bit on the socialist side for for me. Yeah. Now we we accept the fact that there are commons, right, right, David? I mean, yes. we accept the fact, like under a system, we, there are commons. 
I think uh, one of the things we, we talked about, Hoppe, uh, he, Hoppe talks about uh, everything being privately owned and there being no publicly owned commons. In that situation, you know, not only would you need easements, but I don't necessarily think there would be a freedom of movement. And commons might be there, but they would be more of an easement type thing or, or something that's agreed upon by the community as public access type thing. But go, go ahead, uh, Rick. Well, it's just, I, think, I think all of these arguments was – some of these arguments just wouldn't even exist if, let's say, the three of us and, you know, maybe another, let's say, I don't know, 200 – between 200 and maybe a few other 100 people lived in a, in a community, in a village. If there was a road um, or a pathway – going down to uh, a lake or something, and we all just go down there to fish. Um, I mean, maybe one day, some crazy old guy will say, oh, this is my pathway now. And we all just laugh at him. You know, just, you know, the, the, the subject of who owns that pathway might just never come up. Because maybe it just doesn't even need maintaining. Or maybe we all just chip in and just maintain it ourselves so it depends on the size of the community you're looking at it depends on who the people are in the community are they very responsible people so i mean there are there are well, some one situations thing about where something that, like that wouldn't even come up but uh, no go on well, what are we going to say about that Rick, is that the pathway actually goes somewhere you're talking about an endpoint you're going to a place to go fish so you're actually yeah. on your way somewhere you're not just wandering aimlessly across an, an area with yeah. no, with no, any sit down in the middle of some, you know, walk out in the middle of somebody's property and sit down because you have freedom of movement. You stay on the path, and you're headed to a destination that may be on the other yeah. side on somebody else's property yeah. altogether. Yeah. Mm, maybe I think that's uh, but I mean, uh, let, let, let's let's say we, we, we've all been using this pathway, and um, let's say the lake is on um, someone's land. And he's our he's our friend from from church or I don't know from whatever, and he just he just doesn't mind people coming and using the lake, and we've just been doing it for years. We've just been doing it for years. Mm-hmm. No contract, nothing has been in writing, nothing has been right. in writing. Okay, I think that in terms of natural law, um, if if he were to say right one day he just says right that's it I've had enough. And he, he, he takes us to, to a court. I think that there is, there is space, and certainly in common law, there was always space for, for equity. Equity in common law was always, um, if um, the common law, as it was developing different principles by examining different cases, if maybe it, it left um, a result in a certain case, and it was just a bit unfair, it just didn't seem right. It was infringing on someone's free will or something like that. Then they would go to the court of uh, equity, where the, the chancellor, or, it would usually be a, a bishop, it would usually usually be a member of the clergy. Um, he would examine the situation in light of natural law and see, well, is this, is this fair? And let's say we've been going and fishing on this guy's lake for, for 10 years. And then one day, all of a sudden, he comes and says, Right, that fish you just caught. Right, well that that's uh, that's mine, and I'm I'm really angry with you, and I'm I'm taking you to court. I mean, it's kind mm. of unfair. Right. I mean, it's been ten years. He's setting a, a precedent, and it's, it's kind of unusual, you know. 
Um, well, I think there are some situations where you can see where if, if you look at like footpaths and things of that sort and, and even fishing holes and uh, uh, different areas uh, that, that something has been done by a community for, let's say, 50 years, everybody in the community has been allowed to access it. Uh, with very little restriction. And and so you see in common law where some of those things actually just become commons, period. And, and that's that's been allowed to happen by the owners of the property and mo- quite often on purpose. But that's their choice. It's yeah. like giving so- basically giving something to your community, compl- just turning yeah. it over to them. So that's, that's one thing I think, you know, and, uh, but again, you know, it's it's a little different than just waking up one morning and somebody's got a tent in your backyard. <laughs> yeah okay well i mean let's let's think about that pathway again let's say we're going down to do our fishing and there's some stranger um again you know let's say he looks different he sounds different he smells different he's from somewhere else uh we've never seen this guy mm-hmm. before and he's he's there and he's begging for money and we just we don't like him there on the pathway well i mean <laughs> you know what what are you what are you gonna do what are you going to do right. then? And you see that this is kind of where um, having some private ownership, and you know, it, it doesn't have to be private ownership. You know, it could just be public ownership, and it could just be that you could say everyone in this village is just holding this pathway, um, just in 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 common. They just have it as a, a sort of uh, public ownership, but there, there's no contract or anything. And uh, they right. might want to just kick this guy out of town. Well, I mean, in, in terms of old customary law and then what evolved into to, to common law um, in the, the Anglo world, um, I mean, at, at one time they could do that, but at a certain time it then became the domain of the state. Something like that would have been claimed by by the state, as so many things were uh, during the rise of nation states and as we entered modernity. And I think well, one thing is, is you mentioned this is ultimately point what, out. Mm, yeah. Well, I just I just wanted to point something, and I'm, I apologize. I think we have a little bit of no, a lag okay. between us. So you're you're obviously in the UK, and uh, David and I are both in the states. So sometimes it, it seems mm. as though to, that I'm I'm sort of talking and you're trying to talk, but what's going on is there's a lag between when we're hearing each other. Um, no problem. I don't mind. So, but I was going to say, there's a, a friend of mine, Paul uh, Doxlager, who wrote a, a book called uh, Human Sin, uh, Social Sin. Uh, one of the things that, that he talks about, and you've mentioned this several times, is that you, you've said, well, you know, individualism and the way we think now about it is different than, say, two or 300 years ago. He has told me many times, and I hope to have him on the show sometime, uh, he has told me many times that really – the type of, of individualism that we talk about now, for instance, in the United States and probably Britain too at this point, uh, really didn't start coming about until around the 19, early, 19, early 20th century, 1910s, 1920s. He said prior to that, you know, things were much more community-oriented than they are now. And does, yes. that, does that – I mean, if you look at legal theory, does that seem to strike you as, as probably being true? Absolutely, 100 percent. Yeah, I'd agree with him totally on that. Um, I, I think that uh, when we t- when I was talking about individualism before, and I said we get this from our, our slightly more psychopathic uh, Indo-European ancestors. Nevertheless, 
um, especially with the, the introduction of uh, Christianity in Europe, it was much more personalistic. And what I mean by that is that, yes, you saw yourself as an individual, but you were a person living among persons. You are a member of a family, a member of a community. Maybe you're a member of a guild. You know, with all these different jurisdictions everywhere that I was talking about in the medieval world, which meant that there wasn't like a proper state monopoly on all uh, juristic decisions. Um, you had members of the different communities, and your reputation, your reputation in the community meant a lot. Now, the situation we have now since the rise of the modern nation state is that the state has become a, a middleman, if you like, for all human interactions. Any interaction from within my home, when I leave my home, when I go to work, my interaction with my boss, my interaction with someone on the bus, whatever it is, all of it, the state is acting as a middleman between those decisions. And ultimately, what this has led to is less and less and less responsibility for the for the individual as a person among persons in a community. It, it doesn't really matter. I mean, I can have I can have blue hair. I can have blue hair and call myself a woman and um, put a, a, a rather offensive tattoo, let's say, on my forehead, and then I can go out and I can demand that I be given a job. Um, because of that status I've, you know, put on myself, and um, and the state will then just really arbitrarily, and in a, in a in a very nonsensical way, in a very unhuman, um, non-communal sort of way, anti-social way, uh, say, yeah, you have to hire this person. You know, they they could say that. Right. I mean, that sort of thing is increasingly well, becoming the law. Um, well, so to go back to. One of the things that I, I wanted to hit on there, and, and maybe David might have a point he wants to make, is we are getting – we are very low on time. We're actually a little over, but that's okay because it's a very interesting conversation. Um, yeah. Uh, but the, the, I think that one of the things I wanted to point out to make is you mentioned that the, the government, the state, uh, has sort of slid itself in between people and in between people and businesses and so on and, and so forth, and they have – uh, in many ways, taking control of decision making and what I would call the right to discriminate. Every time you make a decision, you have to discriminate. You have to decide if you feel like this is better for you or that's better for you. And so you have to discriminate. And so when you think about that, and uh, it, it is really a form of totalitarianism because the state has interjected it totally to the total of everybody's lives in this way. And yes. so you don't have to have a Stalin or a, a Adolf Hitler or even uh, any sort of dictator or even a state like the Chinese state, you know, the Maoist government where it's a, a, a party apparatus. You don't have to yes. have that. What we have now in many Western nations, United States included, it's becoming more and more so, is a form of soft totalitarianism in which the government has interjected itself into every aspect of your lives and monitoring or telling you, no, you can't make this decision, and yes, you can, and sort of guiding us every, on everything we do, and in some cases punishing us if it feels that we have made a decision it doesn't like. So, you know, that's, that's a huge yeah. difference, I would say, in the last 60, 70 years, too, 
Um, so, so it's sort of really ironic that you see this new form of individualism, and then at the same time, you have that going on as well. Uh, uh, David, do you, I mean, you kind of see where I'm coming from that as well? Yes, I do. Um, I wanted to say that um, I have a friend who's uh, he's Native American, and he's told me about their um, the way the legal how the tribes dealt with um, things legally and socially um, uh, back back before they were um, integrated into a democracy, mm-hmm. and. And he said that um, they used to deal with things based on, like, reputation. If you were um, perceived as bad, you were exiled from the tribe. And uh, and things now, especially in uh, tribes nowadays, they, they have a more democratic uh, approach, and they uh, vote for things. And there also tends to be more... Um, more corruption, um, more, uh, you have like cases of like embezzlement and, uh, and you have, um, uh, more, more like bribes and kickbacks and things. Yes. Yes. Stuff like that happens quite a lot, um, since they've Mm. gotten more democratic and, Mm. uh, I think I think the the responsibility for the elders in that community has been shifted to some entity far away, and I mean they they can continue to exercise this and that role and they can do a good job or a bad job. It doesn't really matter because all the blame gets shifted somewhere else. You see, I mean your reputation your reputation doesn't matter anymore in the community. And so I love what you said, Clifton, about the fact that you know the modern liberal democracy is basically a form of totalitarianism in the sense that it totally envelops the life of, of um, an individual. Now, yeah, a soft, I like, a soft, soft hmm. totalitarianism, a soft version. Yeah, yeah, I you like, know, not the I like hard that version. Yeah. Yes, sure. Um, and in your individualism, uh, there being a part of it, and I agree, but I like Frank Van Dunn's analysis of the situation much better. He He calls it a kind of hyper- individualism hyper individualism so like you know just way beyond um any kind of normal human sense of individualism where you just you just think of um humans as being like little little islands all to themselves in, in their home but of course that's not human nature it's not humans how humans work although i think a lot of libertarians think of people that way and i think that's why we get a reputation as being very autistic but um uh, that's another discussion <laughs> but um Right, autistic but, in the sense that that we make we we, we run a, a series of of decision or or we we run something. Sometimes we we practice reductio ad absurd absurdum, yes. uh, and, <laughs> yes. and we do this with individualism in such a way that it just becomes absolutely absurd. They they refuse yes. to acknowledge the fact that we have voluntary collectivist uh, thinking within libertarian circles. I mean, you you're part yeah. of a family. You work at a business. Yes. You go to church. Yeah. Yeah, or they treat, and this is the this is the the significant point I think. They 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 think of any sort of authority as being anti-libertarian or something like that. But of course, you know, as you just said, if you're a part of a family, well, 
Your dad is your authority. If you go to work, your boss is your authority. And there's nothing unlibertarian about any of that. And um, in Frank Van Dunn's analysis, he said that from the, during the rise of the modern nation state, what effectively happened was um, the, um, the, the irresponsibility that kings had acquired for themselves became, over time, democratized to the people. So you use the example of Henry VIII, for instance. Mm -hmm. So uh, Henry VIII cast off the authority of the church. He was like, I'm not going to have anyone telling me you know, what's right and wrong. I'm going to do whatever I want. It, and in, this is a very truncated version of this history, you understand. But, I mean, that, that <laughs> attitude effectively... That attitude effectively has been democratized to everyone. So the central state will do everything. Yeah. So you don't need to worry. You, you know, any, any problems you encounter. And if you ask anyone, if you ask anyone today, you say, do you trust politicians? No. Do you trust the government? Well, no. So how do you think we can fix this problem, X, Y, Z? Well, the government needs to do this. And so automatically they start shifting responsibility away to some central state far away from them where they don't have to actually do something in their immediate community, you see? And I mean, this, right. this, this has been the result of um, governments casting off natural law, casting off the, the, the real Western legal tradition. And what we have now, even though we like to imagine, oh, it's liberal, democracy, all these words we think mean freedom, Actually, you're right. They are just uh, soft totalitarianism. And that, that system of government is completely alien to uh, Western civilization. Historically, we did not have states like that. We had government, yes. We had authority, yes. We had systems of law, haha. <laughs> we, we invented law, yeah. But we, we did not have uh, despotism. We did not have tyranny like that. So that is... Uh, and, and that's really fundamentally the point of, of my book. That's what I want to try and get across. Okay. I, and I certainly appreciate that. And I, I'd like for – if uh, we're, we're kind of down to the point where we're just about out of time. We've got maybe a minute or two. Um, yeah, I've got to go. I just wanted to make sure, make sure that, that David had a, something he didn't want to hit on real quick before we wrap it. Okay. So do you have anything that you want to add real quick before we start the uh, – Wrap up the show. Um, not, not really. Okay. Well, it did, Rick, you're very thorough. I mean, it was a. This has been an an awesome uh, uh, show because I've learned a lot today, and I, I think anybody who's listening, who uh, who wasn't sure or had some sort of understanding of common law. I think they probably learned a lot today. We, you covered a, a great amount of territory. And if you would, I would like you to uh, sort of plug your book and, and any, any other work that you have before you go. That way uh, we all know what to look for so that we can read your book. Yeah, sure. So the book is going to be called The Uniqueness of Western Law. And uh, the subtitle is A Reactionary Manifesto. And if you want to keep abreast of my writing, uh, on Facebook, you can see my uh, my my group or whatever it's called it's that libertarian chap 
C-H-A-P, like the word for guy, but for English people who are sad. <laughs> that libertarian right. chap. Right. Well, thank you very much for being on the show today. It is, it's, been, it's been great having you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Take care, Clifton and Dave. See you soon. Take care. Take care, Rick. Bye-bye Take care, and we'll be back on the next episode. Close all university departments for black, Latino, women, gender, queer studies, and so forth as incompatible with science and dismiss its faculties as intellectual imposters or scoundrels. As well, demand that all affirmative action commissars, diversity and human resource officers from universities on down to schools and kindergartens be thrown out onto the street and be forced to learn some useful trade. Six, crush the anti-fascist mob. The transvaluation of all values throughout the West invention of ever more victim groups, the spread of affirmative action programs, and the relentless promotion of political correctness has led to the rise of an anti-fascist mob, tacitly supported and indirectly funded by the ruling elites. This self-described mob of social justice warriors has taken upon itself the task of escalating the fight against white privilege through deliberate acts of terror directed against anyone and anything deemed racist, right-wing, fascist, reactionary, incorrigible, or unreconstructed. Such enemies of progress 